on today's episode. The response in the testing scaling up in the U.S. has been so incredibly slow. It's not that there haven't been tests developed, but the rolling out of the testing, the infrastructure that is necessary to support the testing in the millions per day, which is what the experts are talking about, is just not there. And the willingness of the private sector to invest in a duplicative and non-coordinated manner is simply not there because the payouts to individual companies are highly uncertain. Welcome to the Active Share podcast that explores less obvious investing insights in a world that's always changing. I'm your host, Hugo Scott Gall. Today, I'm delighted to have with me two colleagues to discuss the ongoing COVID crisis and its economic impact. Camilla Oxhammer Cruz is our in house COVID expert, and she has a PhD in infectious diseases and knows lots of scary stuff. Also with me is Olga Vitell, who is our macro strategist and just knows lots of stuff. Let's get going and talk about stuff. First question to you, Camilla. You're our uh, most frequent appearer on on the podcast, so you get the first question. The question really is, we kind of thought and hoped that the summer was going to see cases steadily fall. That hasn't happened. We've seen cases, maybe not spike, but certainly rise in some key parts of the world. Why is that increase happening? So a couple of things to highlight. So what we have seen during summertime, yes, indeed, when we went into summer, we're hoping that we'll see an overall decline of cases on sort of a a global front. What we have seen now is that there's been a huge variety of cases. In some areas, we have seen a significant decrease, whereas in other areas, we have seen a decrease in other areas, sort of more of of a stable level. So why this? difference in depending on different areas. So let's break it down, sort of starting with the U.S. first. So here in the U.S., we have seen a steadily increase of cases over the past couple of months, but it has been very much correlated to the Sunbelt states, to the states that open up very early on. And maybe they open up a bit too quickly, to be honest. Whereas in Several other areas in the U.S. we have seen a decline, I would say, sort of New York is a good example, and yet in other areas sort of a a more stabilization. So here in Illinois, we have seen sort of a relatively sort of stable development. But of course, sort of the situation in the southern state has been sort of quite concerning. It's been sort of a very rapid increase in cases. And now in the last couple of weeks, we've also seen an increase in the death rate. More encouragingly, so sort of if we look now the last maybe weekly over a week, sort of it seems like we have sort of reached some sort of a peak with both cases and death rates sort of stabilizing. Why did this happen? So first of all, in this the Sunbelt state, as I mentioned before, they open up relatively early. They open up probably a bit too early when they were sort of when we were in in some sort of peak. And we have also since then learned a lot more about the virus and the virus sort of where it spreads more efficiently. We know that indoor environments such as bar, indoor restaurants, areas where people are in very close proximity, it's sort of a loud environment, poor ventilation. Those are sort of the optimal, optimal environment for the virus to spread. We know that now. And with that knowledge, of course, going forward, we, we can to some extent, sort of adjust our behavior, learn from sort of what we've seen, particularly sort of in these southern states. But we should also sort of not 
forget about we've been through this now for a couple of months. I believe that there is a level of uh, how should you call it the COVID fatigue. People sort of uh, has been uh, for a good part of spring and early summer sort of basically locked into their homes and apartments. And I believe that there maybe was the need to enjoy the summer maybe a little bit too much. And with that came more higher risk behavior. Okay, so to summarize what you just said, when people are in close proximity, indoors, in busy and noisy environments, that seems to be how transmission occurs. Is that is that how you think the average transmission in the US happens? Is that the most Put it another way, is that the most frequently occurring source of transmission? That is indeed an optimal environment. I believe also sort of in family where, where you are, any close proximity, of course, sort of facilitate the spread. So we've also seen that within family, the spread is pretty efficient, meaning that in families where you have a multi-generation generations living together, that is a problem where We've seen sort of a lot of spread to the elder generation. But you're right, sort of in environment, we sort of enclosed, poor ventilation, a lot of people at the same areas, and where we tend to sort of raise our, our voices and therefore sort of breathe deeper and in, sort of inhale and exhale deeper. So that facilitates the spread. I want to bring in Olga here because in Europe and in the US, we're moving into the fall and the winter. Summer's nearly over, which is a shame, but that's a fact. We're going to be indoors more. So how are we not going to see an increase in infections? And therefore, how are we not going to see more of an economic hit than we've seen in the summer? Because, Olga, you've, you've described this to me earlier as a strong recovery. But I wonder how sustainable that recovery is if we know that being indoors in crowded places, which is sort of what you're forced to do in, in the winter months, is the main likely, most likely source of transmission. So let's throw that to you, Olga. Sure, absolutely. Throw me the hardest questions. Well, let's start with, I want to kick off by putting a number, which is kind of a base case at the moment, to sum up a number that summarizes a lot of what Camilla has just talked about, which is to say that the rate of new cases in the U.S. today is running 10 times higher than the comparable rate of new cases adjusted for testing in Europe. So the starting point, while both you know, have seen an increase since reopening, and of course we can debate whether some states in the US have reopened too soon, whereas the majority of European countries have waited, and certainly that has been the case in China as well, which is also going to experience a winter that is quite similar to what you observe in the northern part of the US. So the same issues apply to all three major global demand centers. The starting point is quite a bit different. So 10 times higher, 10 times the number of new cases per million people in the U.S. today as compared to Europe. The second point to make to your point, Hugo and Camilla, is that we have not yet seen a second wave. This is really just the continuation of the original epidemic unfolding and our collective an individual failure such as it is to contain it. The second wave really comes, and this is borrowing heavily from my extensive discussions with Camilla, so thank you, Camilla, for, for this, my on-the-fly gaining of epidemiological knowledge, is that it's going to come with the traditional flu season. So our hospitals and healthcare systems, and as well as our respiratory systems, are going to get inundated 
with an ordinary flu, which spikes around October, November, together with COVID virus. And it's really the ability of the hospital systems, the healthcare providers to care for the caseload that will really influence how much of a renewed lockdown do we really need to have. And from everything on the more optimistic side now that Camilla and I have discussed and read about and shared more broadly is that we have really, our medical community has gotten much better. We know a lot more about the virus. We know what it does and doesn't do much more than we did in February and March of this year. And our ability to deal with cases before they show up in the hospitals as most extreme and overwhelm our regional and local uh, healthcare centers is much greater now. There's a cocktail of different drugs for different levels of disease, et cetera. So the idea here is that our base case, to translate this now into economics, our base case remains that there are no significant lockdowns such as we saw in the spring of this year will be necessary. That is more at risk in the U.S., less at risk in Europe and in China. But that remains our base case across the board. Nevertheless, the risk of lockdowns and the risk of very significant increase in the caseloads in the new in the rate of new infections does raise the specter of additional headwinds to recovery and is quite likely to dampen economic activity as we move forward. Certainly, certainly incrementally. Against this background, though, we need to remember that retail sales volumes in Europe and U.S. are already growing, have already exceeded basically pre-crisis levels and are growing, so in positive territory in year-on-year terms. While industrial production, so the, the famed supply, so to speak, is lagging very much behind. So there is significant room for catch-up to address current levels of demand even before we see further acceleration in that demand. So the recovery does have legs, but there are significant headwinds from the virus perspective. So just picking up on that, then I wonder how much of the recovery has been pent up demand that's now being released. And then you said, look, we might, we don't think we're going to see lockdowns, or if we do, they, they, they might even just be sort of localized. But what happens if I just don't want to go out, isn't it? So the lockdown stops me from going out. But what happens if I just don't want to go to a restaurant, to a movie theater, to a theater, to anything that's indoors with lots of people? Because you can't say it's safe to do that. As per what Camilla just said, it isn't necessarily safe. It's the most likely cause of transmission. Absolutely. So just again, to rebase here. So in the US at least, and in continental Europe, most large-scale events are still closed to the general public. So we've seen the Champions League in, in soccer pick up to carry forward from uh, last season. You know, those matches are playing to crowdless stadium. In the U.S., theaters are not open. Concert halls, venues of that sort remain closed. So the baseline, so we've seen a strong reacceleration in activity post the reopenings, but we're definitely nowhere near the pre-crisis levels of activity. And I am not aware that anybody is forecasting that these venues and these large-scale you know, gatherings will be allowed to take place, even in the absence of fear factor, on anything like the next three to six-month horizon. Six months might be a little further out. There are lots of other developments that could take place, but certainly nobody's discussing this in the near term. In terms of the fear factor, as you rightly pointed out, that's ever there and is and is omnipresent and will likely increase as the number of cases skyrockets, right? And so that will further limit and be a headwind to 
socializing indoors to the small businesses like restaurants that rely on that indoor traffic that are now able to, you know, mitigate that somewhat by having outdoor dining space, which will have to close inevitably in the next couple of months in large parts of the U.S. and continental Europe and, and probably China as well. But that activity that is relying on large gatherings has largely been absent even in the summer months. Okay, so I, I definitely want to get on to where we are with vaccines and treatments. But before that, something you just touched on there, Olga, and this is a question for both of you, is behavioural changes. At the start of this crisis, we were maybe hopeful that by the summer things would feel quite normal, and, and they don't. The longer it, things don't feel quite normal, the more likely it is, I think, that some behavioural changes might become semi-permanent. So what, what, what do you think about that? Kind of next two to three years, do you think we are going to see some psychological impacts and some sort of permanent behavioural changes and some lost habits? So I guess, Camilla, I'll ask you first, and there's not a scientific question, it's very positive and judgmental. I know you're a scientist and yours like evidence and proof, but what's your feeling on that? And then Olga, you know, as an economist and a, a behavioralist, I'll ask you. Of course, there will be, uh, to some extent, uh, behavioural changes. The question is how sustainable those changes will be and how quickly sort of will go. But all those sort of behavioural changes doesn't necessarily have to be evil. Uh, sort of interacting today, sort of at William Blair, we do everything online. And, and while I don't disagree with the importance of in-person interaction, to some sort of extent, the situation we have today is, is working and it's working fine. And I think that sort of more and more people will realize that certain things that sort of we have the technology before, but we didn't really do it because it wasn't really sort of in our culture. I mean, I think that those cultural changes sort of where we already have the t technology available, but because of more behavioral or cultural sort of aspects, we haven't really sort of fully utilized those. I think that could very well change. And, and maybe so that we would see the pendulum go a little bit more extreme now during sort of a height of the pandemic and after the pandemic post-COVID sort of we may sort of to some extent swing back, but but it doesn't necessarily have to swing back to exactly sort of where we were pre-COVID. The same go for some other trends sort of in the healthcare arena, for example, with telemedicines. Now we're getting more comfortable interacting with our, our doctor physicians online. Sort of that technology was available before, but we have not necessarily felt comfortable. It hasn't been really in our culture necessarily to use it to its full full extent. I think that we are getting more more comfortable exploring aspects of, of particularly sort of using technological tools to a better and, and full extent. And like I said, now during sort of the height of the pandemic, sort of that may be a little bit more towards extreme, but I do think that sort of there will be sustainable changes to our behavior that will change how we interact with others, how we interact with, for example, physicians, our pharmacies, et cetera, et cetera. Of course, there will be, there will be changes. On the first point, on the social interaction point, you know, we humans are, are social animals. So when we're forced to be by ourselves, when we're forced indoors, when we're forced to not interact in large groups for a period of times, we may or may not comply willingly. And some of us are more introverted than others, so it's easier for some than for others. But by and large, I don't think a pandemic, however long it lasts, whether it lasts a year or two years, which is on average how long pandemics generally last, is going to disrupt 
hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years worth of evolution. So I think the social aspect of our interactions will not likely persist. We've seen this time and time again in previous pandemics in the 1918, in the more recent ones from the 1950s, in the early, in the late 50s, believe it or not, there was another flu-like pandemic, and people reverted back to the normal social interactions with, with a vengeance, I may add. And so I expect something similar to happen this time when we're finally rid of this for good, as long as it seems like from now. The second point, and I really want to echo Camilla's point on this, is that this pandemic has forced a change in the pace of adoption of new technologies. So it's true that technologies that are available today were not available in previous pandemics. And so a lot of the technology-enabled social interaction and, frankly, consumerism purchasing electronically, online, with digital payments, et cetera, was not available 50 years ago. And so to the extent that people, many people, large groups, especially in Southern Europe, in Germany, on the payment system, were forced overnight to drop the use of cash and in-person shopping and resort to shopping online with cards or digital payments of, of different forms, that has brought forward the adoption, the massive, large-scale and increased pace of adoption of new technologies. And that part will likely stay. The convenience, the cheapness, the safety that has now been proven, I think, is likely to stay. The same thing on the working remotely part, especially for high-end services firms, so accountants, asset managers, architects, etc., it doesn't mean that we will never go back to the office and we'll never see our colleagues in person again. There are tremendous values to be had in personal interactions. But it may mean that the pandemic has forced us, or at least some of us, to rethink the quality of our daily interactions, such that perhaps we may end up going to the office three times a week and have more targeted and more focused set of, of meetings, interactions, et cetera, rather than five days a week. And on that, again, you know, there have been some studies done, especially in places that have lagged in productivity gains, such as Japan, where Microsoft went to a four-day week instead of five for a long period of time and saw a sustained increase in, in productivity among virtually all cohorts of employees. And these studies have been repeated in New Zealand and some other places. So the point I'm trying to highlight is that not all of the experiences associated with COVID will be bad, and many of the good ones will definitely stay. Okay, okay. So I, I want to get to Camilla on vaccine development of vaccine. But before I get there, I guess I want to ask you both again, are we getting this the wrong way around? So we're all very focused on a vaccine, and it sounds like we're going to get one of some reasonable efficacy at some point quite soon. But is that the wrong way around? Actually, should we be saying the vaccine's a silver bullet, but actually, if we got really good at testing, had a really friction, frictionless way of testing, that could be just as good a way of actually managing infection risk, or maybe not just not as good a way, but still very effective. So is this one of those questions where the medical scientists will always say, let's find a vaccine, but actually the engineer might say, actually, I'll look at the problem the other way around. We can solve this by a, a low-cost, frictionless testing regime. So Keen to hear both your thoughts on that. So, Camilla, you go first. And then once we've done Olga, we'll go back to where we are on the vaccine, because that's obviously front and centre in importance. 
So I would complicate the, the situation by saying that we, we unfortunately need both. We need both good testing and eventually we will need a vaccine and we will get a vaccine. The question is how long it will take, not only to, de to develop a, a reasonably good vaccine for the different patient population cohort, uh, because we are not all equal in terms of our immunological response, but then so that we had all, also the rollout phase, so sort of how long it will take before everyone can get a, a vaccine. So we're probably looking at a broad mass distribution of a vaccine likely to happen maybe fall 2021. That's over a year from now. So sort of what are we going to do during this period of time? We cannot just sort of, we have to get on with, with life. We have sort of have to get on with our economy. And during that period of time, we need to get on top of, of testing. Testing has been something that I would say has been surprisingly poor in, in a large sort of, particularly sort of in the US, where we have we seem to struggle with the logistics of the testing distribution because we, we do have the technology, we do have the know-how, but we don't have the scale and we don't have the, the logistics. If we talk about scales, it's so over, uh, over the last couple of months, we have scaled up testing. I think it has more than doubled. But during the same period of time, the viral spread in the country have quadrupled. So just sort of giving, giving you sort of a, an idea of, of how far behind we are in testing and what can testing do for us if we sort of get it up to the level that we need. Well, testing put eyes on the pandemic. At the moment, we are fighting an invisible virus. We don't know where it is. We don't know where it's spreading. We don't know when sort of or where next outbreak will occur. The only way we can get control over the pandemic is to put eyes on it. And that means testing. And we need to test not only those with symptoms, we also need to test those that are called the asymptomatic, those people that have been affected but don't know that they're affected because they don't have any symptoms. More and more studies are showing that also these asymptomatic persons, they can spread the virus. We don't know exactly to what extent they spread it, but they do spread. So without getting eyes on the pandemic, we can never control it. And if we cannot control it, we cannot safely open up schools. We cannot safely open up the economy. So I would say it's highly crucial that we build up the, the infrastructure around testing and get the logistic to work in the entire country, but it doesn't help if one area in the country get control over the virus when the neighboring area does not, because the virus doesn't really know borders. So we need to synchronize the testing. We are, whether we like it or not, we are in this together. And that's the only way we can solve this, by synchronizing it, but getting sort of control over the logistic. We have the technology, but we don't have the logistic in place. And then during that time, so that we will continue to work on the vaccines. We, we have made great progress. We can talk about that later. But it will take, before we have a massive rollout of vaccines, it will most likely take more than a year from, from today. This is not a problem of molecular biology, right? This is a problem of industrial organization. And specifically, one that has been uniquely poorly handled in the U.S. as compared to Europe and, and in China. And this is a problem that is, while we're great believers in free market economies and the capitalist systems of industrial organization, 
The problem of pandemic and specifically within pandemic testing and rapidly scaling testing is really not well suited for markets and requires a central coordinated and organized and even mandated response. And here's what I mean by that. If you're asking a company to build out large scale manufacturing testing you know, facility whose success is really predicated on it being closed within a year or 18 months, it's really hard to get private sector investment to scale up very quickly for that aim because most private sector investment is geared toward longer time payouts with more durable asset bases and, and business models. So, and here we have the opposite problem. We want lots and lots of testing over a very short period of time such that hopefully in two years time, all of that testing infrastructure will be unnecessary and obsolete. So that is the essence of why the response in the testing scaling up in the U.S. has been so incredibly slow. It's not that there haven't been tests developed to Camilla's point, but the rolling out of the testing, the infrastructure that is necessary to support the testing in the millions per day, which is what the experts are talking about, is just not there. And the willingness of the private sector to invest in a duplicative and non-coordinated manner is simply not there because the individual, the payouts to individual companies are not there, are highly uncertain. This is an example of where the country needs to come together and mobilize really from the top down and organize this a bit better, which is exactly what we saw in Europe basically take place in places like Germany, in smaller countries, but also increasingly in France and Italy and everywhere else. Great stuff. So, Camilla, back to you on the vaccine. To the layperson, lots of potential vaccines in the works. You know, the numbers sound impressive, but that really is not that great a predictor of success. How would you rate your confidence in a reasonably effective vaccine coming to market in the next six to nine months versus what you thought three or six months ago? Well, we have a lot more data now than what we had three to six months ago, because then we just started this. I must say that I'm, I'm quite confident that we will have a reasonably good vaccine. And I'll get back to what I mean with reasonably good. But I'm, I'm quite confident that we will have a reasonably good vaccine being approved by early next year. We will have data from the leading vaccine candidates that will, will start coming out. We're talking about October, November time frame. So then we will have real world data from these vaccine trials. And they are sort of sizable trials of 30,000 patients, different sort of population cohorts. So we'll be able to compare sort of how the vaccine works in the younger population versus the older population, etc. Because that's something that is very important to keep in mind. And why I'm so confident, yes, it's the number of vaccines that are in development, but also that they have different, they are coming from different technological background. And that also brings me to the issue of, of some vaccine may work better in some population versus other may work better in other population. Because as I mentioned before, we, we don't have the same immunological background. The elderly population we know, for example, has a weaker immunological system. And therefore, the sort of vaccine in general does not work as well in the elderly population as it does in the younger population. The problem is that with COVID, it's primarily the elderly generation that are at risk of developing critical ill symptoms. So 
So with with a reasonable good vaccine, and, and I think that it's very important to keep in mind here that we do not necessarily need a vaccine, the, the perfect vaccine here right out of the bat. We need a vaccine that is reasonably good in stopping infection. And FDA has said about 50% better as compared to a placebo in reducing infection, but also reducing the likelihood of developing severe disease. Because what we want to accomplish now is, of course, to, to minimize the spread of the virus. But should you become infected, it's also important that you do not develop sort of critical ill symptoms. So therefore, we don't need the perfect vaccine that we can develop in the sort of the, the second, the third generation of, of, of the vaccine down the line. What we need now is a reasonable good vaccine that sort of to a reasonable level sort of stop the infection. But should you get infected, that the vaccine prevent development of critical ill symptoms. And I'm, like I said, quite confident that we will be able to achieve that and we will have a vaccine on the market by early next year. Obviously, it's too soon to say there are lingering health effects from this because it hasn't been very long. But there is certainly, there are those making the argument that there are some ongoing negative health consequences for people who who have had this. You, with your sort of deeply scientific hat on, what do you make of that? Is this kind of different in its sort of ongoing effects on the body, different organs, etc.? When we talk about the pandemic, we tend to focus a lot on the cases. We tend to focus a lot on the death rate. But we seem to forget to underestimate the what is called the morbidity of the virus. So, so to be different with the mortality, the death rate, sort of the morbidity is sort of the, the impact on the body. And yes, we have seen that in patients that become critically ill, they don't necessarily sort of have to lead to death, but people that they become critically ill, they survive it. But it's a long way back to anything that can sort of be called a pre-infection or sort of a normal life, because we have learned that this virus is not just a respiratory virus. It's it has a systemic impact of the entire body. It induces a, a very potent immunological response in the patient, and that over reaction in the immunological response has a very detrimental effect on the entire body, on different organs. We've seen neurological effect, cardiovascular effect on top of the respiratory effect. So yes, in patients that do become critically ill, we have seen a detrimental impact on the entire body due to the systemic overreaction of the immune system. We're going to wrap up now with one Tricky but important question to Olga. So as we're speaking, the S&P 500 is is back at its all-time high, which it was, I think, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, Olga, because you usually do, I think back at the levels it was in February. So here's a fiendishly difficult but simple question. Why? From my vantage point, a couple of reasons. Both are cyclical to an extent. The first reason is equity market multiples are a function of the prevailing interest rates in the fixed income markets. And current level of interest rates, and we can debate whether this is warranted or not and what the path forward is, but that's a secondary question or rather a different question. The fact of the matter is that interest rates today are just a fraction of what they were at the end of 2019 and even in February of 2020. 
So for example, the U.S. 10-year was at around 2% or so, just a touch above. And today we're looking at you know, a rate of 0.6%. So if you use that as your denominator and nothing else changes, you would expect equity market multiples to be more than double their levels of prevailing levels of February 2020. Now, I'm not arguing, nor I think is anybody, that that would be a reasonable course of action. I'm simply pointing out the mathematical fallacy, so to speak, of just looking at the S&P levels and comparing them to a prior period without thinking of the denominator, which is the interest rate. The second point, and is also somewhat cyclical, is where we are in in the recovery. So quite specifically, in the early stages of economic recovery, and this has been true as best I can tell for most of the recoveries that we've experienced in post-World War II period, valuations in the equity space adjusts first. And that's because the forward-looking nature as of the recovery, the sequential improvement in economic activity is already evident long before it shows up in year-on-year changes in corporate earnings. So specifically, actual reported corporate earnings improvement lags orders and sales improvement by about three quarters or so. And that relationship, as best we can tell, remains stable for now, which means that in the early stages of the recovery, it's all about being more expensive. So the stock's prices are are bid up on the expectations of better year earnings, which are currently very depressed and which will then materialize with some delay. So that part of what we're seeing so far is not that unusual. Given the extreme levels of recession, obviously the dynamic is, is more stark this time, but the actual sequential forces, both in the market and in the real economy, are actually surprisingly well following you know, the cyclical recovery playbook. So let me stop here. I said it was the final question, but I, I guess I can't leave it there, which is what's priced into equity market is very difficult to say, but back where we started, if we see a slowing in the rate of change in economic recovery, because we all want to stay indoors in small groups, not large groups, would that present a risk? to equity markets, do you think, versus what's priced in? Because you you said this is a very strong recovery and probably has exceeded expectations. Is there some risk to that disappointing expectations as we we go into the winter into the, the world's largest economy, the US? I think the risks, as I see them currently, are twofold. The first one is exactly what you just outlined, that the recovery is somehow aborted or at least minimized by the prevailing pandemic headwinds such that everybody suffers. So that would be the scenario that we experienced in March of this year, with at least the threat of lockdowns, if not outright lockdowns themselves, but certainly much reduced levels of activity, both on the spending side and on the production side. So that's that's a non-negligible risk, to be sure. Another risk, which I think is quite as powerful, although perhaps a little bit more subtle, is that the actual gains, the equity market gains at the headline levels are more muted moving forward into the, you know, sort of subsequent stages of recovery. But the leadership transition underneath the headline numbers is quite stark. And what I mean is, so far, the companies with the best earnings growth visibility have been disproportionately rewarded, and rightly so. In recessions, that's where you tend to go. It also helps that these have been the biggest earnings growers and cash flow generators. And of course, I'm speaking about 
quasi-technology slash digital consumer stocks, as well as select portions of the healthcare universe that Camilla knows about all too well. And as we move into the economic recovery, what is already apparent in the macro data will start to filter through bottom-up earnings revisions and expectations for repricing more of the cyclical components of the market, such as the higher quality industrials, technical equipment, industrial commodities, higher end chemicals, things like that. Things that sectors and industries and companies that benefit disproportionately more in an industrial recovery, such as the one we're seeing. And so underneath the index gains, we're going to see a more pronounced rotation in the leadership in the market. So both of those two risks are equally important to keep in mind moving forward from my perspective. Great. Well, look, I think that is a nice cliffhanger. I can feel another podcast coming on. So I think we will return more centrally to to those issues. And also, I think we'll also return to the idea of the notion of rising inflation set against a backdrop of decades of disinflation. But those are all for another time. So what I want to do is say thank you to you both again. It's always good to have you on the show, Camilla. You're pretty much always on the show. We're going to be retiring your microphone soon. (laughs) But thank you both very much. And that's it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Active Share. To hear additional insights from William Blair Investment Management, visit us at blog.williamblair.com. The Active Share is available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and TuneIn. For questions, comments, or topics you'd like to hear discussed, email us at podcastim at williamblair.com. This content is for informational and educational purposes only and is not intended as investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any security or to adopt any investment strategy. Investment advice and recommendations can be provided only after careful consideration of investors' objectives, guidelines, and restrictions. The views and opinions expressed are those of the speakers as of the date of this recording, are subject to change without notice as economic and market conditions dictate, and may not reflect the views and opinions of other investment teams within William Blair Investment Management. Factual information has been obtained from sources we believe to be reliable, but its accuracy, completeness, or interpretation cannot be guaranteed. Any discussion of particular topics is not meant to be comprehensive and may be subject to change. This material may include forecasts, estimates, outlooks, projections, and other forward-looking statements. Due to a variety of factors, actual events may differ significantly from those presented. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal. Any investment or strategy mentioned herein may not be suitable for every investor. References to specific companies are for illustrative purposes only and should not be construed as investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any security. William Blair Investment Management may or may not own any securities of the companies referenced. It should not be assumed that any investment in the companies referenced was or will be profitable.